0: to another episode of Building the Future with Dan Rundy. Today I'm joined by my friend Evelyn Farkas. She's the executive director of the McCain Institute. Evelyn and I went to the same elementary school together in the same hometown. <laughs> we grew up one street over. Just by a few years, this is totally crazy. So I feel like it's almost like a reunion, a Chappaqua reunion. So this is great. I'm really happy about this. So at the McCain Institute, Evelyn oversees the nonprofit's focus on democracy, human rights, and character-driven leadership. I loved John McCain. I campaigned for John McCain. I personally raised money for John McCain. I took my oldest son to his funeral. I loved John McCain. I revere John McCain. So I'm so happy you're stewarding that important legacy, Evelyn. She's also the founder and CEO of Farkas Global Strategies, where she provides corporate executives and boards of directors with targeted advice based on her assessment of global patterns. Evelyn previously worked as a deputy assistant secretary of defense known as a DASD, For Russia, Ukraine, and Eurasia, I suspect she's going to have some really thoughtful views about what's happening in Ukraine situation. I know she'll have some thoughts about that. A position she was appointed to by President Obama in 2012. She spent time across government, including as an advisor to NATO, where she counseled Secretary of Defense Leon Panetta in preparation for the 2012 NATO summit. She also served as a political candidate as well, running for New York's 17th Congressional District in 2020, which I want to talk about as well. I think that's awesome. And she has a really wonderful educational background as well. But as I said, the fact that she grew up one street over from mine in Chappaqua (laughs) and went to my (laughs) same elementary school is the most important thing I could say about her. And I think we also went to the same middle school and the same high school, which is totally crazy. So I'm so... Horace Greeley ad- High School. Horace Greeley High School. I can't <laughs> believe this. Okay, so I have to ask you, my first question is, did you have Miss Jolly as a music teacher at, at Graflin?
1: I did. And thinking back on it, I, I, I didn't realize how poetic it was that our music teacher, who was always so cheerful and full of music and lightness, was called Miss Jolly. And that was her actual given name.
0: <laughs> did, you, did you have Miss Jockamy for first grade? I did not. I had Mrs. Fry. Oh, I knew Mrs. Fry. Yeah, she would be out on the playground. Exactly. I, I'm
1: a little older than you. So I know, you know but some, only by a few years.
0: You're but- <laughs> not, too, not too little. How about, did you have Mr. Barlow for math at high school?
1: No, because I was so bad at math, but I had Mr. Corwin, which
0: tells you that I was... Really Tommy good Corwin. To- right, you and I talked about that. We both had Tommy Corwin, yeah. who was a social studies teacher. He's probably going to listen to this podcast because he keeps in touch with me. Will you send it to him? Back. Send it to him, please. <laughs> I will. I um, like Tommy Corwin. He had a great class. I love Tommy Corwin's class. Fantastic. And he was, a, I thought he was a great teacher. He's a really interesting guy. Okay. Who are your favorite teachers in the Chappaqua school system? Who are the ones you remember the most?
1: Well, so in middle school, I had Kevin Boyle. He taught us Irish literature he was like a, I think he was a visiting teacher, actually, or he wasn't there very long. And then I don't remember her name now, which, you know, I don't have a memory like a steel trap like you, Dan, but she was the English teacher who was married to another English teacher. You probably remember her name, Mrs. Doyle or something like that. Anyway, um she was great. And then... I also had Mr. Sesta. You might remember him. I
0: I did have Mr. Sesta for eighth grade. Yeah, he took me to Washington.
1: He made us watch the news every night. I remember that very clearly. Also, because my sisters had, they were 10 and 11 years younger than me, and they had these little dolls. And it was during the election that Carter was running against Reagan. And John Anderson was the independent. And my one sister, I said, What's the name of your doll? She said, wagen because my father was a Reagan supporter. And then I said to the other sister, Well, what's the name of your doll? And she said, Anderson Carter Peter. Like she just made it up, but she had heard these names because I sat in front of the TV doing
0: my homework for Mr. Sesta.
1: Um, so, yeah, but I, I think we've covered it. It was a great education.
0: I did too. I, that just my last thing is there's a book about Mr. Barlow called Teacher of the Year that was written mm-hmm. by a, a, a woman who went and got a PhD in mathematics afterwards. Anyway, so I, I really enjoyed that book because I think I had Mr. Barlow up for two math classes, I think. He was, wasn't was like an amazing teacher, but he was uh, famous. So mm-hmm. that's so interesting. Anyways, that's great. Okay, so all right, you've had a really interesting career. We figured out that we grew up near each other only like after a couple years of knowing each other and like being at different conferences. Where did you grow up? And like, oh, my gosh, I can't believe this. Let me first talk about you ran for public office. Let's talk about that. I think running for public office is a very honorable calling. How did you decide to do that? And what was that like?
1: Yeah, I mean, Dan, so, you know, what I have always prided myself on actually is being not very partisan and working across the aisle. I worked for almost actually a decade in the legislative branch as a senior staffer on the Senate Armed Services Committee and then running a bipartisan commission, which was the child of the 9-11 commission looking at weapons of mass destruction and terrorism. So I had really staked my reputation for a long time. I was an independent. It took me a long time to become a Democrat. And then, as I said, I worked across the aisle and I was raised by Republicans, et cetera. So these labels and kind of teams didn't mean that much to me. But I have to say, you know, I served in the Obama administration. I understood clearly the threat that Russia posed to the United States and how the Kremlin operated. And when I came out in 2015 and and then starting in 2016, we saw this weird intersection between the Russian government and the Trump campaign. And then, frankly, the way President Trump governed and his impulses scared me. And I was literally at a McCain Institute conference that we have every year in Tbilisi, Georgia. And I woke up at four in the morning because we had been coaching the opposition that they have to have a plan B. And I thought, well, Evelyn, what's your plan B? President Trump gets another term because that was alarming to me. And I thought, well, I'll just leap into politics. I'll move back to New York and that will be that. And I confided in a couple of friends from New York. What's the plan B? And Two weeks later, Nita Lowy announced in early October that she was going to retire and she was my hometown congresswoman. My parents still live in the house I grew up in. I I remained very much in touch with everyone in Westchester and Chappaqua throughout all the years that I have lived and traveled through my professional life. And so I decided after some convincing and mostly the, the final really important component was the local politicians who said to me, We want a woman who's experienced to come in and take that seat. They didn't want to lose the advantage that they had with Nita Lowy. And also she was a trailblazer, you know, she won that seat in the eighties when there weren't that many women in Congress. So that was my motivation. Obviously I lost. It's fine <laughs> because I went on to to serve my country in other ways.
0: I think that was awesome. I think it's great. At some point, I wanted, I've always been tempted to do that. So I think it's really great that you did that. I really respect you for, for running and, and doing that.
1: Thank you. So, it wasn't easy, no. especially during COVID.
0: Oh, God. How did you get started in Washington? So you went to elementary school together and middle school yeah. together, and how, or, or we went to the same ones, and then you went a PhD. How, how did you, from your educational experience, how did you get to D.C.?
1: Yeah, so I mean, first of all, I'm the child of Hungarian immigrants. Um, my parents were well educated, but not connected. My father was a library director. My mother was a hospital pharmacist. I grew up in Chappaqua, but we were not wealthy at all. In fact, we were struggling economically, and it was even a struggle for my parents to send me to college for various reasons. And so, my mother worked three jobs, and I went to Franklin and Marshall College, and Interestingly, I mean, for a small liberal arts college, they had a really strong international component of their government department. And so I learned comparative politics. I was a government major and a German minor. I did a semester abroad. From there, I worked at the Council on Foreign Relations in New York. Then I got a job overseas in Austria. And then all that led me to have a good enough track record to apply and get into the Fletcher School. Fletcher School is fantastic. I did so many interesting things there, including I got a fellowship on the Hill. I, I went and worked in Bosnia for six months between, in the middle of my PhD program as a human rights officer. And ultimately, one of my professors said the Marine Corps Command and Staff College is hiring professors. Why don't you apply? And I thought, well, they're not going to hire this girl. But they actually wanted somebody who had recent experience. I had on-the-ground experience in Bosnia. I was focused on ethnic conflict. So I came to Washington. I taught for four years at the Marine Corps Command and Staff College. In that time period, I got my doctorate. And then I thought, well, I didn't go to Fletcher to teach. You know, it's much more practitioner-oriented. So I got a job on the Hill with the Senate Armed Services Committee, working for Carl Levin, And kind of the rest is history. It's quite common for Hill folks then ultimately to seek a job in the administration, which I did. So I, you know, worked on the Kerry campaign that didn't work out, continued working with Levin and with the McCain and Warner people, you know, across the aisle all those years. And then um, ultimately much later made it into the Pentagon.
0: So at the Pentagon, you covered Russia, Ukraine, Eurasia. What was going on at that time? Well, (laughs) it wasn't boring, right? When
1: I started, actually, my boss at the time, Derek Chalet, was the assistant secretary. He said to me, Okay, so I need to really worry about the crises in the Middle East and Africa. So you just deal with Europe. (laughs) Wow. Yeah, August 2012. And I decided, Okay, I'm going to survey the landscape and see what it's all about. And frankly, What I heard from the intelligence folks was that Russia was building new military capabilities and they were getting alarmed. And at the same time, the policy people were telling me, well, the Russians say they want to cooperate, but they aren't really moving the ball down the field. And so I started to basically ask my superiors for permission to re-look at our defense policy
0: towards Russia. Wow. That's wild. Was that like pushing a rock uphill at the time?
1: Initially, I mean, there was some receptivity, but obviously with 2014 and Russia's invasion in No, after Ukraine, that, that
0: changed, of course. It was a whole
1: nother world. Yeah. So, I mean, it was it was clearly a high intensity time, certainly from 2014 onward. We had already identified some goals and we were working to get Montenegro into NATO. And frankly, the last boost that we got was from Putin because of his invasion of Ukraine. So we, we succeeded in enlarging NATO in the Balkans, which meant increasing stability in the Balkans. But then, of course, we were focused, you know, most of the time on the crisis and how to help the Ukrainian military and the Ukrainian government maintain as much of its sovereignty as possible.
0: Yeah. What were you doing when Russia invaded Ukraine? What were you doing at the time?
1: When the invasion occurred a year ago in February, I was not yet at the McCain Institute. But I was very alarmed, and I was getting a lot of calls from business people. I was consulting at the time. Yeah. Um, so large banks, investors, you know, across the board, what's going to happen? And I said, Putin is going to make a military move. He's not arraying his forces on the border for his health, especially not what we saw arrayed, you know, blood supplies, et cetera. He's going to use his military. I did not, however, predict that he would make a run for Kyiv and that he would try to take the whole country over, What I predicted was something less ambitious, which is essentially what he's doing now because the Ukrainians pushed them back. But that's where I was when I got to the McCain Institute. Of course, I was informed by all this. And if I can take a minute to talk a little bit about the McCain Institute and how this all fits in, because I mentioned how I lost the election, but I'm serving again. And I really do feel like what we're doing here, you, your organization, CSIS, our organization, the McCain Institute, we are civil society and we are helping our government help other governments. We're helping them with their foreign and defense policy. We have robust programs right now, aside from our fellowship program, which is like kind of our flagship program. We try to create a lot of other John McCain's out yeah. there, people who, who have character driven leadership skills. But aside from that, you know, we have a democracy program that's domestic and global. Under that umbrella, we started a a business alliance for Ukraine, which is basically tech and defense tech companies around a table with U.S. and Ukrainian government officials and also some experts trying to figure out how can we help Ukraine leapfrog. We also have a program that works on preventing targeted violence. It's largely funded by the Department of Homeland Security. That's aimed at anti-Semitism and white supremacy, white nationalism, And they have a prevention practitioners network. It's about a thousand different educators, medical practitioners, law enforcement across the board. It's very, very new. It's very cutting edge trading information and advice on how to stop these targeted violent acts, whether they're attacks on synagogues or school shootings. And then the last very important part of our work is combating human trafficking. That's something Ambassador Cindy McCain brought to the Institute. We are doing everything from training in the field to also having practitioners, prosecutors collaborating to working with tech companies like Amazon on how to improve the inspection capability of the agricultural department when they're looking for forced labor and human trafficking. So literally using data. So we have a lot of really innovative, interesting things that we're doing. And all of it is essentially to meet our mission, which is fighting for democracy, human dignity, and security. You know, We want a world that is freer, safer, and fairer
0: for everyone. That's that's amazing. What is the thing that most energizes you when you get out of bed in the morning at, for your day job?
1: it's this. I mean, it's working with people who are so mission-driven. All my colleagues were lean and mean, but they understand that they're having impact. Even though we're a nonprofit, we have so much impact. We brought people around the table with the Ukraine Business Alliance, for example. We had a very senior State Department official, I won't name names, Mm -hmm. say, wow, I've never met with these companies before. So that, it's intangible. It's very hard to explain how important that is, but if you have companies that are working on surveillance technology or AI technology, right, and they now have an open door to explain to the State Department what kind of capabilities they can bring to the U.S. government, even that introduction is worth so much to the U.S. taxpayer, frankly, because hopefully these technologies will help us save money here in the U.S., all around the world, and including, of course, in Ukraine.
0: Totally. I 100% agree with you. Tell us a little bit more about some of the training that you're doing.
1: We do everything from combating human trafficking training in Arizona, and in the past, we've done it in Texas. We also do, well, of course, we have the Global Fellows Program, which trains people to be leaders. That is hybrid, so they're from all over the world, and they do a lot of their training actually online. Um, We work with a nonprofit to develop that curriculum. In the human rights area, we have trained Russian exiles Mm. on how to organize nonprofits, you know, everything from boring things, right? Like how to organize a nonprofit to how to use the international legal courts to strike back against Russia and the Russian government when they're attacking you.
0: This is something I wanted to raise with you. You know, you know, the region really well, What I try to say often, and I sometimes am overly generalized, and say, I'll say we have a problem with Russia. But what I really mean is we have a problem with Vladimir Putin and his murderous regime. How should we be engaging with them, and what more should the U.S. be doing? Obviously, what you're doing at the McCain suit sounds like the kinds of things I'd like to see more of in engaging Russian dissidents. Because we're going to – there'll come a time when Vladimir Putin leaves, I hope, sooner rather than later – but you know, we need to find ways to engage with different touch points of, of Russian society. So how, how should we be thinking about that?
1: Yeah, it's really, really hard, Dan, because of course the Russian government has so much control over the media space. And so the Russian people, especially the older people, it's going to be very hard to convince them that Putin is wrong. But the younger people, they have access to social media, to the and they're savvy with the internet and they know how to use VPNs to get around the Blocks that the government might put up firewalls. So we need to do what we can, but I I confess I don't have an easy answer for that. I think in we need more Russian language media. We need to support organs like Medusa, which is based in the Baltics now. Of course, our Radio Free Europe, they are doing good work and they are actually helping, I think, our policymakers because the reporting we get from RFE Europe. Also, I find very informative as somebody who's following and trying to advise our government informally.
0: So there's a lot of stuff to be down in the dumps about. There's a lot of crappy news in the newspaper. (laughs) So what are you optimistic about?
1: I have to always remain optimistic in the power of the people. And when I look at Republic of Georgia, where the government essentially is in the pocket of Zina Ivanishvili, who is the essentially the sole oligarch in Georgia, in the Republic of Georgia. He made his money in Russia and it appears that he is somehow allied with Vladimir Putin and with the Kremlin. And the government that he controls, the party that he controls, has essentially made a decision not to support the United States on sanctions and to pretend that Georgia is not already at war with Russia, which it is because 20% of Georgian territory is occupied by Russian forces. But they are trying to sort of stay out of the war between Russia and Ukraine, which, again, they are already involved in. So this government tried to pass what they call in Georgia the Russian law on NGOs. It's basically a way to crack down on independent civil society organizations. And the Georgian people went to the streets. And that gives me hope. The Georgian people still want freedom. They want the ability to be part of NATO and the European Union and to have a future where they can make decisions for themselves and not have the Kremlin dictating their kleptocratic, you know, economic system. So that gives me a lot of hope. And I think likewise, we'll see a day when the Russian people will also, you know, ask for their own freedom. And finally, I would say just those dissidents, you know, we cannot forget Alexei Navalny, Vladimir Karamurza, who was a pallbearer at Senator McCain's funeral, these men and women who are in jail, you know, them and their associates, they're the most well-known here. Shakashvili, who's not necessarily a dissident, but he's also wrongfully imprisoned in Georgia. These people, we need to remember them. We need to raise their names publicly along with their associates. And that is one thing that we try to do at the McCain Institute, because we try as much as possible, given that we are the legacy organization of Senator McCain, to, to have a voice like his.
0: Man, I miss his voice so much. I met him several times and he was such a wonderful leader. So I'm so pleased, Evelyn, you've been entrusted with this important charge of, of stewarding that legacy, but also building on that legacy, all the things that you've been talking about. It's so great to have you on today. Thanks for making the time. I also share your view about I think we need to think about. Being optimistic about people power, if I can use that term, I just think that I think if if people are given the opportunity, they prefer democracy over authoritarian regimes. I believe that you see that in China. You saw that with that. The white paper campaign where people are holding up blank sheets of paper you've seen. So I I think we have to be patient. This is a marathon. There's going to be an event by the time this comes out, it'll have happened later. But there's going to be an event that people can go look at at the Atlantic Council about instigating a fourth wave of democracy, democratic movements. I'm all for that. I think so. I think what you're doing at the McCain Institute is part of that. You need to be hopeful We need to work with civil society. We need to kind of bend the arc of the curve of towards human freedom. And so I think what you're doing is really great. I'm so uh, happy you're there. And thanks for coming on today.
1: Well, thank you for having me, Dan. It's been great. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more.